Um, so, hi everybody. <laughs> um, as many of you will know, but for the sake of those of you who have maybe just joined us today, we have been spending the summer um, looking at the whole idea that, that we are worshippers. We have um, plunged right into many passages that, that reveal to us the whole idea that the Father is after those who are going to worship in spirit and in truth. And um, we've been reminded over the past few weeks of the value of worship for us as individuals and how transformative honest to goodness true spirit and truth worship is when we participate in it in a wholehearted way and um, we'll just get rid of those we've also been reminded that the pattern that is most beneficial for us to follow as we pursue god through worship is when we begin with thanksgiving thanksgiving um, particularly being our response to the works of, of God in our life, which moves into praise being our response to his nature as our father. And then that results in worship, which is our response to the manifest presence of God. As a consequence of true worship, our whole body then can't help but respond to the overwhelming love that we encounter when we become aligned with the heart of the Father and connected to it in the correct way. Alan took last week to introduce us to the whole idea of yada, which means to extend the hand in thanksgiving and praise. I think I have that one on a slide. So as we lift up our hands in worship, we realize that we are just like many key biblical figures throughout the years whose normal heartfelt response to the presence of God was to extend their hands, was to throw their hands up to their heavenly father. The lifting your hands to worship the Lord is really just an outward expression of the fullness of God making himself known in our hearts. But today the plan is to unpack the kind of worship that that in my experience and, and in my observation is kind of, it's the most difficult. And I have to tell you, this has been a really tough one um, to pull together, not um, from a content point of view, but because I know you um, and because I know that um, many of you, life's not just rosy in the garden at the minute. And, um, and so I want you to know that before I go any further into this, that everything that I speak this morning, I speak at... Um, with as much compassion as the Holy Spirit will afford me to give today. Um, and, and, I, and I really pray, and I was, <laughs> I was literally on my face in my front garden on Thursday night praying for everybody about this, that, um, that you would receive that we have, what I'm going to say today, that you would receive it with grace and that you would receive it knowing um, that our heart this morning is the Holy Spirit would really move. So today I hope to bring a deeper understanding to another aspect of, of the word yada, which is to lift your hands and explore the Hebrew word toda. Can I apologize that when I say Hebrew words, I could completely be pronouncing them totally wrong with a Northern Ireland lilt, but hopefully you'll know where I'm going with it. The word toda is actually a derivative of the word yada. So in the physical action with yada to lift up your hands, it really underpins the whole word toda today. It's central to the meaning of it. So try and keep that in mind today as we explore that word together. It's commonly accepted that toda worship is a thanksgiving kind of worship, and it can be defined as, as giving worship by the extension of the hand in adoration or agreeing with what has been done, and this part's key, or will be done. It's usually connected with sacrifice, which practically 
when it comes to total worship looks like the giving of thanks or praise as we lift our hands in worship as a sacrifice generally before we receive the manifest presence of God. So simply put, it's thanking God for something that I don't yet have in the natural. It's agreeing with his word. It's holding firm to our faith in his promises that he will make all things work together for our good. This kind of worship moves the heart of God because in those moments we are choosing to believe his word and that his promises that he says are true. In true total worship, where we say thanks to God, lifting our hands and surrender to him, we are choosing, and it's hard, but we're choosing to lift our eyes off of our circumstances, however difficult and messy they might be, but then to fix them fully upon the one whose heart towards us is truly trustworthy. And I can't help but observe over the years that that there's supernatural power in the declaration in this kind of worship, that our current circumstances aren't the final word. Now, this type of offering means that we will not consider our circumstances with natural eyes, but we will look only through the eyes of faith at our God, who is our ultimate deliverer. Toda is not to be underestimated. As again, my observation over the years has been that it it will move the hand of God upon our lives. It believes God for the impossible and it releases the power and wisdom of God on our behalf as we praise him. So the context of total worship is actually found in Leviticus 7. I'm sure you were all reading that this morning, weren't you? The subsection in Leviticus chapter 7 in which this particular verse, verse 12, is found is actually named the sacrifice to ask for the Lord's blessing. You see, sacrifices in the context of the Old Testament usually represented different things. You could sacrifice to ask for forgiveness, to atone for your sins. You could sacrifice to petition to God. But you could also offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So let's take a look at Leviticus 7.12, see what it says. If you offer it, that's the sacrifice they're talking about. If you offer it to give thanks, you must offer some bread together with it. Use the finest flour to make three kinds of bread without yeast, two in the form of loaves mixed with olive oil and one in the form of thin wafers brushed with oil. It's really important to note that this is an optional thing. This is an optional peace offering. You had to decide to make the choice of this offering of thanksgiving to God. It was never a forced thing. Nobody ever made you do that. This is something that you had to decide within your own self to do. And bread as we know, is often used in a, as a symbol for the provision of God. And yeast is quite often symbolic of sin in the Bible. So to offer loaves and thin wafer of bread without yeast in it is to make a pure-hearted offering. And as much as we know that there's no active present sin in our lives that we're aware of, we have to make a pure-hearted offering to God. But notice in that passage that it also says that oil is really crucial to these loaves. And we know that in the Bible, oil is a a picture of the Holy Spirit too. And so when these people brought that offering of worship and that offering of thanksgiving for the Lord's provision, it had to be brought in a pure-hearted way mixed with the anointing of the Spirit. We make the choice to bring Toda. We do it in an open, pure-hearted way, knowing that we are or we will connect with the Holy Spirit as that happens. And as I've touched on this morning already, we all know that it's easy to say thanks when things are are going well. 
and we feel like life has dealt us a good hand and we feel the favor of the Lord upon us, it's easy to say thanks in those times. But can I press into this a wee bit this morning and ask, what would it look like if we were able to offer a sacrifice of praise when our circumstances aren't like that, when they're a bit messy, when they're very painful, and when they're just a wee bit unfair? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that we are to be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. So to put that verse into context, I wanted to take a wee minute and look at Paul and look at where he found himself in Acts 16, 22 to 26. So the context of this particular passage is um, Paul and Silas had been, I think it's Lystra, and they've been telling everybody about Jesus. But a young slave girl who um, had a demonic influence in her life that was able um, to manifest as telling fortunes were following them around. I think she followed them around for about three days. I think Paul did well, to be honest. After the third day, <laughs> he rebuked her. I'd have lost the head after about half an hour because she was shouting all over the place. These men, these are the ones who are going to tell you about God. They're going to tell you how to get saved. And this went on for days. And then Paul rebuked the, the demonic influence out of her. And then her owners, because she was a slave, they realized that they weren't going to make money out of her anymore and they were not happy with Paul and Silas. I think it's really important to note that Paul exposed the darkness and the darkness didn't like it. The darkness kicked back because look at what happened. It says in verse 22 that the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet into the stocks. Look at this verse, it's a nugget. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. So despite the flogging, despite the public humiliation, the persecution, the physical and the spiritual pain that they would have been experiencing at this time, they chose while in prison, to Toda. They chose to give thanks and worship God, believing that he could act on their behalf. David Cerullo says of this passage, your wholehearted thanks to God can speak a spiritual tsunami to reverse any negative circumstances you've been facing. And did you notice when their breakthrough came? I loved this bit when I got it. I just loved it. It came at midnight in their darkest hour. God broke through with the deliverance they were seeking because they made the choice to worship him. So God's will, his good, pleasing and perfect plan for us, which is that we would become transformed into the likeness of Jesus, is to give thanks in everything. And by my reading of that own verse, I couldn't help but think that there must have been something supernaturally transformative in this very act of Toda, of giving thanks at all times, in the good and the bad. And to jump back to our Leviticus passage, it goes on in Leviticus 22, 29 to say how we are to offer this kind of, of thanksgiving sacrifice. It says, when you bring a thanksgiving offering to the Lord, sacrifice it properly so that you will be accepted. Well, what does that mean for us? Fundamental to total worship is the posture of our heart. When we choose to worship God properly, when we choose to fully engage our heart in spirit and truth worship in the midst of our mess, 
And in the midst of our pain, we're making a choice from deep within our soul to say, God, I'm thanking you for the breakthrough that's coming, even when it hasn't quite arrived yet. Or, in another way you can say it, I'm thanking God for his love and his goodness. And even if my circumstances don't change, I'm still going to do that because he's still good. That is what it is to worship him properly. When we tota, we're simply choosing to say, God, I'm thanking you. I'm thanking you that it is as you say. I don't care what my circumstances look like. I'm deciding that what your word says is the true thing. Jonah is another really good example of it. And, and we're all very familiar with Jonah, I'm sure, as are the kids. And he's a character in the Bible that... Um, as I've read it over the years, so I've just kind of been a bit baffled <laughs> by Jonah. He's a prophet of God, and, and he was told by the Lord to go to, um, to Nineveh. Sorry, I had to pause on that when we were in India. <laughs> they used to say Nineveh, and I nearly said Nineveh to you. He was told by the Lord to go to Nineveh, and, de and he declined to follow the leading of the Lord. The result was that um, he, he took off in the opposite direction on a boat, and God sent a storm to really prevent him from running away. He admitted his actions to the sailors. He said, like, this is actually my fault. And he suggested to them that he threw them overboard. And, um, and that's what happened. Um, it says in Jonah 2 that he sank right to the depths. The seaweed was wrapped around his head. But God, in his mercy, he sent a big fish to swallow Jonah to prevent him from drowning. When I was a wee girl, I used to think that, that the whale was part of the punishment or the big fish was part of the punishment. But it was... The big fish was actually a part of God's mercy. And now, whilst in the belly of the fish, after pouring out the anguish, you can read it for yourself at the beginning of Jonah 2, after pouring out the anguish that filled his heart, this is the conclusion that he arrives at. He says, But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows. For my salvation comes for the Lord alone. And here's the breakthrough. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Jonah is a really good example of Toda. As we find him in a somewhat difficult situation, literally trapped in the belly of a fish. Imagine, like, we read that as a wee Bible story to our kids, but actually imagine what that would be like. Imagine the smell. Imagine the darkness. Imagine the sensory overload that you would be feeling, like, things swishing about you, not actually ever knowing that this is how you're going to spend your last days on earth inside the belly of a fish. But bless Joni comes to his senses and he repents of his actions. And then he begins to toda. I can picture him lifting his hands inside the belly of the fish, giving thanks to God <laughs> as he looks to the Lord for his deliverance from this perilous situation. And then God's response is to set Jonah free from the big fish. There's no doubt that this is a really tough kind of worship. This is a really hard thing to do. When our hearts retract into that self-preservation mode, the most unnatural thing for us to do is to lift our hands in worship and declare that we fully trust God. But can I say this with as much grace as I can give you this morning? That's when you need to do it most. When our hearts retract from God, we need to be brave enough to let them unfurl back into the hands of the one whose heart towards us is totally trustworthy. We no longer walk according to the Spirit as people who love Jesus and follow after him. 
but we walk according to the ways of the Spirit. And it's a sacrifice because although we may not see the full manifestation of his promises in our lives, we have to make the choice to live as though we have them. That's what it is to walk in the Spirit. To worship like this is a big, bold act of faith. And we know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so as we offer Toda thanksgiving, as we lift our hands, particularly when we don't want to, not only does it stir our heart to come again into the alignment with the heart of God, but I believe that it stirs God's heart as we worship him in spirit and truth in that very moment. So Psalm 69 is the Psalm of David, and I wanted to take a wee minute to look at that today. I want you to think about the language that is used in this particular passage. It's incredibly emotive. Um, I don't imagine as it was being composed that David was just saying it in a monotone kind of way. Um, so think about that. Um, there's heart-wrenching struggle going on for David. Think about that as we read it. And I'll try my best to um, read it that way. <laughs> Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the merry depths. There is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. And as you read further through that psalm, you'll see that in the process of laying his heart out before the Lord, David becomes transformed because look at where he arrives at verse 30. He says at the end of that, after laying his heart out, right? Because, you know, God's big enough. He can take it. He can take the honest stuff that needs to come out of you. He can take that. So as he's done that, he says at the end, I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. That word praise is our word toda. David is thanking God for what he's doing ahead of it actually happening. There's no doubt he was in a bit of a mucky situation at the, at the start. He felt like he was just about keeping his head above the water. But he offered a sacrifice of praise. He worshipped God in spite of his circumstances. And he goes on to actually say in that passage that the praise of a thankful heart is more pleasing to God than an animal sacrifice. And we know how part important that was in the Old Testament. Because David knew the heart of God so intimately, he knew that God's ultimate goal is to have hearts that are fully surrendered to him, despite everything else that's going on in their life around them. Those who choose to worship in spirit and the truth when they least feel like it. Another psalm of David in which the word Toda is used is Psalm 116. It says, I love the Lord because he hears my prayers and answers them. Because he bends down and listens, I will pray as long as I breathe. Death stared me in the face. I was frightened and sad. Then I cried, Lord, save me. How kind he is. How good he is. So merciful is God of ours. The Lord protects the simple and the childlike. I was facing death and then he saved me. Now I can relax, for the Lord has done this wonderful miracle for me. He has saved me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall live, yes, in his presence here on earth. In my discouragement, I thought they're a lion when they say I will recover. But now what can I offer Jehovah for all he has done for me? I will bring him an offering of wine and praise his name for saving me. I will publicly bring him the sacrifice I vowed I would. His loved ones are very precious to him and he does not lightly let them die. Oh Lord, you have freed me from my bonds and I will serve you forever. I will worship you and offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Here in the courts of the temple in Jerusalem before all the people, 
I will pay everything I vowed to the Lord. Praise the Lord. That sacrifice, that toda that we read of in Leviticus 7, is to be our proper response to God's gracious acts. In verses 17 and 19, it shows us the public nature of this offering. The psalmist will make his offering in the presence of all the people and in the courts of the house of the Lord, and the courts of the precincts of the Jerusalem temple, the central worship site for the people of Judah, where the manifest presence of God resided. And you know, you can worship the Lord at home in your own private place. It's a really valuable thing to do. It's really important for your own spiritual growth to do that. Um, And even, I suppose in my own experience, I find to to demonstrate to your children um, how transformative the power of of being uninhibited and the safety of your own home in the presence of God can be. And so if you find church is, is an intimidating place to lift up your hands and you feel reserved in this kind of setting by the, by the thought of throwing your hands up in the middle of your pain, could I encourage you to explore it in your own house? I do it all the time. And as well, not that my dog could tell me, but she's never said I'm crazy. You know, all my kids just know that it's normal. But can I say that there is something truly transformative about total worship when you can thank God in public as you lift your hands up to him when we gather together as a body in his presence when everybody around you knows that life's just not going so well for you at the minute and they know a wee bit about it your pain and your mess but you make the choice to lift your hands up and give thanks to God and declare that he is still in control that he is still on the throne And that he is still good and he can move on your behalf. I've just completed this really um, beautiful book about King Hezekiah. And I was really caught by um, his, his character, the depth of character that he demonstrated in the midst of all the national stuff that was going on. But in, in the midst of his personal stuff that was going on. And I wasn't sure whether to bring Hezekiah up today. But then as I was doing my Bible reading through the week, Hezekiah came up again. And I kind of thought, right, God, there might be something here for one or two people today that we need to touch in on. Hezekiah was the son of King Ahaz, and and the Bible describes King Ahaz as an abominable king. He, um, let me just look about a wee bit here. He um, participated in pagan worship that put you in jail now. He um, sacrificed his children into the fire of Malek. Um, He also participated in, in shrine worship that involved in a, I'm trying to be very coded in, in what I'm talking about here, but you'll probably get it. Inappropriate actions towards other people um, as, as they worshipped um, together in shrines. I mean, this is the king of Judah doing this. So Ahaz, his father, just went so off track from the Lord, it was unbelievable. But here's what the Bible says about Hezekiah, his son, right? It says, Hezekiah put his whole trust in the God of Israel. There was no king quite like him, either before or after. He held fast to God, never loosened his grip, and he obeyed to the letter everything God had commanded Moses. And God, for his part, held fast to him through all of his adventures. I think that's a fairly good character reference, isn't it? But then Jerusalem was held in siege by the king of Assyria. And they were literally trapped inside the walls of Jerusalem, surrounded by one of the most notoriously fierce armies at the time. Assyria wiped other nations out like they took no prisoners. And Assyria sent a spokesman to come and speak with Hezekiah's spokespeople. And, uh, and he taunted the inhabitants of Jerusalem And it really looked like there was no hope. It looked completely bleak. They were trying to cut off their water supply and everything. 
But listen to what the enemy said. And see if this resounds with you in your own life. This is what the enemy said to the people in Jerusalem in the midst of their troubles, when hope seemed completely elusive. And see if it sounds familiar to you. This is what he said. Don't listen to Hezekiah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Listen to the king of Assyria. Deal with me and live the good life. You only live once, so live. Really live. The enemy tried to lure the people of Jerusalem to surrender to him by using persuasive and seductive language, by offering them land with wells and, and, and making it out to them that their life would be better off away from their true king. He wanted them to abandon their king. Have you ever felt like that? When things are just going away, but crap that you just want to walk away from your king? Has the enemy ever got in there and tried to lure you, persuade you that he can offer you a better life? But do you know what Hezekiah's response was? It says in the Bible that he went to the temple. He made the choice to journey to the temple to where the presence of God was. And he faced full on the hopelessness that he felt. He called out to God for intervention, first through Isaiah the prophet, and then as he himself prayed and worshipped, you can read it for yourself in 2 Kings 19. It tells us his prayer and, and God's response to him, if you want to look that up for yourself. But then in his own personal life, Hezekiah becomes really deathly sick. Isaiah comes to him and says, do you know what, mate, you've got days to live, you may get your affairs in order. I don't imagine he said it that way. But um, he told him, you're about to die. This is, you're about to be snuffed out. This is the end for you, Hezekiah. Here's what Hezekiah said. Hezekiah turned from Isaiah, Isaiah being a representation of a situation, right? He turned from the news that he just received that he's about to die, and he faced God, and he prayed, Remember, O oh God, who I am and what I've done. I've lived an honest life before you. My heart's been true and steady. I've lived to please you, lived for your approval. And then the tears flowed. Hezekiah wept. While these verses don't primarily speak of Hezekiah worshipping per se, I, I can't help but think that sometimes our prayers can also be a form of worship. His heart was just so open and bare and led out before the Lord. He allowed himself to face his pain and the disappointment of, of, of how his life was, was going, you know. And here's what the Lord said. The Lord said back to him, I've listened to your prayer and I've observed your tears. I'm going to heal you. I can't help but feel, this is not in my notes anywhere, but I can't help but feel that the Spirit wants me to give some of you permission to weep. I can't help but feel that the Holy Spirit is saying, it's okay to face what's going on in your heart. It's okay to let it out. It's okay to let it out in the privacy of your home, but it's also okay to let it out here. Hezekiah, and this is what I loved about Hezekiah's story, he turned to God before the healing had even happened. Before he got the healing that he was crying out for, he decided to turn his back on the situation and cry out to God. So worship, whether it's through song, through our words and prayer, and specifically total worship, where we declare the goodness of God despite the shambles that is around us, it transforms our heart. But I can't help but observe as I've studied this that, that it moves God's heart to impart 
some breakthrough that we might need. In my own experience, I've experienced um, breakthrough, but not in the way I was expecting it. A lot of you know that um, before we got married, um, I had some troubles with, with my back. And um, I'll try and keep this really brief, but we um, got engaged in 2008. Um, took long enough to get engaged. Isn't that right? <laughs> um, and when we, when we got engaged, we really felt like God was calling us to India. And like this, you know, I was like, yes, God, we want to live for you. We are going. It doesn't matter what it costs us. Stephen worked in the carpet factory. They weren't giving him a career break. He had to take a redundancy. But we knew that God told us to go to India. So full of faith and perhaps a wee bit of 26-year-old naivety, you know, we were going. Um, and everything, like, great, Stephen, he took his redundancy, but he actually ended up getting a job somewhere else. He didn't even have to go for an interview for it. God was providing. But all the while, I had a, a prolapse disc in, a, in the bottom of my back, and it, it presented a sciatic pain down my leg. And I was fine, and I was surviving on, like, a bucket load of painkillers, but it was okay. And um, I was offered surgery, but we felt, it's not right, we're about to go to India. Um, and we declined the surgery. And I remember it being, it was like 10 weeks before our wedding. And I was literally bent over like an old woman. Like I was like literally like this. I couldn't put my socks and shoes on. I was 26 years old. Couldn't put my socks and shoes on. My sister had to do that for me in the morning. And I remember being in church in Lurgan on, on the Sunday night and going up and asking Phil and some of the elders to come and lay hands on and pray. Because, you know, I was full of good ideas. God, wouldn't it be really great for our story if you healed me? Wouldn't it be, it would just make our story, like he needed ideas from me, you know. Wouldn't it be really great, God? It would be such a testimony to your power. So we got the elders to pray and nothing happened. It didn't come in the way I wanted it. And that was a Sunday night. On the Thursday, Corey Gracie, he comes here. She's a physio. She actually brought me to the Royal A&E um, because morphine wasn't even cutting it. I could hardly even get out of bed. <laughs> this was nine weeks before our wedding. And I remember looking through those wedding magazines. You know the way you do. Not the men, but the girls will have looked through the wedding magazines as they're getting ready for their wedding. It's all very exciting. And there was actually a girl who had the same story as me. But she ended up in a wheelchair on her wedding day. And something inside me went, I, I think this is going to be a part of my story. And you know what? It wasn't quite. But nine weeks and a day before our wedding, I found myself in the Royal, rushed up to an MRI. It actually turned out that I had a condition called coita equina, where it was about to trap the nerves to my bladder and my bowel. And I don't say this lightly, but I would have happily, because I couldn't cope with the pain anymore, I would have happily had my leg amputated because it was just horrendous, you know. So I was rushed for emergency surgery that night. But before I went, I mean, I was, I was I'd literally lost. I was crying all over the places. The nurse had to come and tell me to shut up in the neurology ward. Like, I was just, I was just howling, you know. Um, but I remember, like, my family and Stephen being around the bed. And I remember lifting out my Bible in, in the midst of self-control and saying, here's what God said about us going to India. Here's the passage in Isaiah that he gave us about people coming from a far-off land to bless a nation. And I went for the surgery f three or four hours later. I woke up and the girl, the nurse in, in recovery said, there's a big lad outside who wants to come in and see you. Is that all right? I thought about it for, no, I didn't. I said, yes, come on ahead, come on ahead. And when he came in, the first words I said to Stephen was, my leg's not sore anymore. And for me to say that was huge. I had no pain. Now, I had to lie flat for four days because the glued stuff in there and I wasn't allowed to move. But I was actually able to stand up straight. I hadn't been able to do that for six months. I was actually able to put my wedding dress on and walk down the aisle. Because if that surgery hadn't have happened, I, I dread to think what our wedding would have looked like with me hobbling down the aisle like a wee old woman. 
God didn't give me the breakthrough that I wanted, right? He didn't heal me in the way that I expected him to. But I was at his mercy. <laughs> I can give him all the ideas I want, but it was a part of his plan. It was a part of his story. Now, look, I've had a relatively good run after the back surgery, but now it's starting to come back up a wee bit again. I can't say that I'm fully released from it. I'm having a few sort of minor complications from that. But I am so thankful for what God has done, and I'm going to continue to be, you know. But we've chosen that moment to believe that what God had said to us was true about going to Indy, you know. The final example of Torah worship that I want to just speed through really quickly because I'm so conscious of time here is, is Psalm 22. A lot of you will know this psalm. It's a psalm of praise and deliverance. It's a psalm of David. It's a messianic psalm that was written centuries before Jesus ever set foot in the earth. Um, and it, it, it's the, ver- it's the first verse of it is the verse that Jesus quotes while he's hanging on the cross, right? It says, um, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I believe he couldn't actually get any more out because there was no air in his lungs to do that. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart was turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. This is Jesus on the cross before he ever even came. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to their cry for help. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, participated in Toda worship. Thanksgiving, despite his circumstances. If you were ever going to be in bad circumstances, it was then, wasn't it? It's widely recognized that that Psalm 22 would have been a psalm that everybody would have memorized. They would have known that psalm. And so as Jesus quoted that first verse, that everybody that was gathered around him, he would have been reminding them of that psalm and encouraging them to push further into it. He wanted to, first of all, remind them of who he was, but also of what it can be like when all hope is gone. This is where Jesus arrives. He says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. This leads us to the place of realization in verse 24, and this is what I want to kind of land with today. The Father has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. I don't think I can stand up here without giving you something from Lisa Terkirst, if that's how you even say her name, I don't know. She says, The most powerful praise songs are often the guttural cries of pain that got turned into beautiful melodies. She goes on to say, I know this is hard, but let me be the one to lean in and whisper, God is working this out. He's not far away. He is right here with us. We need to cling to this hope. 
believe this hope, live out this hope right here and right now. Even when your prayers aren't, aren't answered in the way and the timing that you want, and even when the whole thing feels messy, we will trust and we will declare with hands stretched to the heavens that God is still good. So this morning, as we close our time together, can I, can I gently encourage you that the Lord sees both your heart and your circumstances. His eyes are not closed off to you, even if everything else has fallen apart around you. Remember, he's seeking those who can push through that and worship in spirit and truth for their own transformation. And we may know about your pain, and there may be some of you that not another living soul in the world knows about what's going on deep within you. But can I encourage you to bring total worship today? The offering of thanksgiving, which it's just so countercultural. It flies in the face of everything that we know in our flesh, you know. But can you bring that to him today for the breakthrough that he may just be about to impart? Can I encourage you to be brave and lift your hands and your heart to him and praise him for the victory that you're crying out for? Can I encourage you this morning to return to that place of fully trusting the heart of the Father he is for you. He is not against you. He is on your side and he wants the best for you. So I'm going to invite the band back up this morning. <clears throat> and I'm going to say, from a personal point of view, I'm joining you in this today. I don't want my back to go back the way it was. So I'm going to lift my hands up today and I'm going to thank God in our circumstances. I'm going to thank God for what he's doing, and I'm going to ask him for the breakthrough that he may give me, but that he may not. But I'm still going to say that he's good. So, Father, this morning we're just so grateful that your Holy Spirit has been here. This morning we're just so aware of your presence, Father, and only you know the heart of the individuals that are here today, and only you know the touch that everybody here needs from you. But God, this morning I ask that you would impart courage, that you would impart faith, that you would impart healing if that's what's needed, God, emotional and physical healing, Father. This morning, God, that you would impart freedom as we come to lift your name high. In your name.